remarkable accomplishments are happening every day on the Colorado Mesa University and Western Colorado Community College campuses, from faculty instruction and research to student projects and community involvement. CMU Now is a monthly segment of the KAFM Community Affairs Hour, where we interview faculty, athletic coaches, and students to keep you up to date on all things CMU and WCCC. I'm Caitlin Birdsall, along with my co-host David Ludlam, and we'll have two guests on the show today. And our first guest is Colorado Mesa University Foundation CEO, Liz Meyer. Welcome to the show, Liz. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to join us virtually and have a little chat with David and I and the KFM listeners. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And I, you know, I was thinking about if you are the CEO of a foundation, you're essentially in a position where, you know, people are giving and donating and investing their their money um, in CMU through you. And that's that when people are giving their money, that's, that's kind of an intimate thing. I imagine it requires like, you know, close relationships that you foster with people in the community and donors. And so I really wanted to kick things off by um, getting to know you a little bit. Um, what is your life like? Um, and how did you come to work at the foundation? Sure. Um, yeah, you're right. It is absolutely a, a relationship based um, career. And um, interestingly enough, um, I, uh, I grew up in Grand Junction and, um, went to school here and my mom was actually the first full-time director of what was the Mesa State College Foundation. So when I was growing up, um, she was working in a little house, um, probably where the MAV have is now. And it was her and, two other people in this little house and they were raising money to buy up houses to the west of campus. And so I, I feel like I've known Mesa for a long time and it's kind of in um, your blood. What's that? It's kind of in your blood. Your... It's in the blood. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was in the blood, but um, when I went off to college, I was looking for work on campus and the, um, the call center that reaches out to alumni to ask for, uh, support of the university was hiring and I told my mom about it and you know she'd spent her career doing that and she said oh yeah you can do that it's easy just call people and ask them for money it's no no problem you can do that <laughs> easy and yeah super easy so I I applied and I got a, a job doing that I worked there for four years and ended up also working in the advancement office there and so when I got out of college and didn't know what to do I had development experience and um, development offices tend to be hiring all the time. Um, so I, I got a job at Northwestern University when I graduated and that kind of started my career in fundraising. And um, my husband and I, who are both from Grand Junction, we moved back when our son was one and there was an opening at the foundation and um, I applied and I've been been with the foundation ever since for about seven years now. And it's been really great um, people in this community are just so supportive of the university and, and our students, and it's been a, a great job. So I'm happy to be part of part of the Mavily. We're lucky to have you. <laughs> well, you are listening to CMU Now on KAFM Community Affairs, and our first guest today is Colorado Mesa University Foundation CEO Liz Meyer. So Liz, the foundation plays an integral role in the health of the university um, and really with supporting our students in all different kinds of aspects. Um, but I think it may be a part of the university that, you know, isn't the first thing that comes to um, mind for a lot of listeners. You know, they might think about our academics or athletics or our performing arts. 
Um, but like I said, it's a really important part of what we can accomplish as a university. Um, so I'd like to know if you could kind of explain the role of the foundation at CMU and how the foundation has evolved throughout the years as um, CMU has evolved and grown. Sure. So, yeah, you're right. We're kind of the behind the scenes um arm of the university and our role is really to encourage and engage private support of the university. So outside of all of the public support that we receive, um, the foundation and our staff really, we work with individuals and businesses um, and private foundations to support all aspects of the university. But um, one of the things that we've really been focused on over the last couple of years, and we've had some tremendous growth, is focusing on scholarship support and supporting our students. And um, we've just seen some really great growth in terms of how much money and how many students, um, individuals in the community are able to support through the foundation. So um, the foundation has an endowment of about 35 million, which, um, has grown exponentially over the last 10 years. I think 10 years ago, we were at around 13 or 14 million. And we're providing about two and a half million annually in scholarships um, for students. And that's grown over the past five years from about 800,000. So we've really seen an, an incredible amount of generosity from the community to support our students. And a lot of what we do is is fostering those relationships and and helping people support our campus. Liz, you, you, you mentioned the word generosity. I, I want to ask you a question related to that. So I think everybody in the world, every business, every family, every individual has in some way, shape, or form been impacted by the pandemic, and, and has, there's need everywhere. And so uh, I was reading on CMU Now sort of an article about the Maverick Relief Fund, something that I know you spearheaded. And and there had to have been some some concern about whether or not there was going to be the generosity available, given all the need to to raise money for students. But uh, from what I could tell, there has been a significant outpouring of support from donors to the Maverick Relief Fund. Uh, could you talk about, I guess, what the Maverick Relief Fund is, but why you think that even with all the need out there, donations are coming in the door, you know, every every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to to, yeah, the, the Maverick Relief Fund is something we started um, in March of, uh, you know, last month or two months ago, uh, right as the pandemic broke. Um, it was becoming very clear that a lot of students were going to need additional financial resources. And um, some of the stories coming from our students, you know, we, we knew we had to step up and, and to try and provide some additional funds for our students who were losing employment. They're families were losing employment and they were just struggling. And I think you're right, you know, right at the heart of uncertainty and a stock market that was you know, rapidly declining, we were a little unsure of, you know, how it, how it would play out and, you know, if people were going to give. And um, I think what is most remarkable and what I think is special about CMU is our donors are intimately connected with the institution and they really care deeply about CMU and our students. And I think that the fact that we've been successful in, in raising 125000 just in a few short weeks for our students is really a reflection of that and, and people's commitment to the institution and to our students. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I, we were a little hesitant, but 
I think it's really a reflection of just our, our donors' commitment to our students. Well, congratulations on, on the success of that fund. I know it's helping a lot of students. Thank you. It is. I hope so. Yeah, I know that it's we've we've already exceeded the amount we've raised and we're continuing on um, so that we can continue to, to get them the support they need. Great. Well, you are listening to CMU Now on KAFM Community Affairs, and our first guest today is Colorado Mesa University Foundation CEO Liz Meyer. Um, I know I've been following the Maverick Relief Fund pretty closely um, just because I handle a lot of our social media, so we get outreach from different students that are struggling a lot, and it's been great to be able to direct them to this relief fund to let them know we do have the financial support to help a lot of them. Um, And it's been really incredible to see the way our alumni and faculty and staff staff and donors have stepped up to support this fund. Um, And then recently, I also read that our Associated Student Government and then the Help Colorado Now Fund also um, did contributing gifts of about $40,000. And I read that as of May 4th, the fund had awarded 115 students a total of more than $324,000 in relief funds. And I think it's really impactful to hear those numbers, but I think it's even more impactful to hear Um, stories from students that have benefited from the relief fund. So I don't know if you could maybe talk to us and the listeners a little bit about any of those student student stories that you've come across or you you've heard of who have really benefited from the relief fund. Yeah, I I think you're right. We've been able to help a lot of students and um, you know, one student in particular comes to mind who um, you know, her mother was a, a single parent and, you know, was helping contribute part of her paycheck to, um, to her daughter's education and because of, you know, COVID-19 um, lost her employment, was no longer able to do that. And, and so she found herself in a place where, um, you know, making decisions like rent and tuition and all those things was very difficult. And so we were able to give her a micro grant um, that helped her offset some of those costs, allowed her to register for school next year and really kind of took that burden off of her um, so that she can she can continue in her studies. And, um, you know, I think one of the most important things we can do now is is not shy away from educating um, these young people because certainly they're the next nurses, doctors, engineers, you know, the people that we need um, helping us in these types of situations. So it's it's been really great to help a variety of students and many of them have, you know, a lot of different stories of how this this virus has impacted them. So we're, we're really excited to be able to help all of them. Well, Liz, you just mentioned students, and we've been talking a little bit about them, but I wanted to ask you about your donors. And what's always amazing to me when you publish your annual report is the diversity of donors that you have, you know, uh, foundations, um, older donors, and younger donors, student donors, um, faculty and staff, and everything in between, huge diversity of donors. What is it about people that give, or what is it about donors that no matter their age or no matter where they come from that, that kind of makes them the same or what do they have in common and how does it give your job meaning to be able to work with people like that? Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. We have such a broad range of, um, of people who contribute, you know, from small amounts to large amounts. And I think the one thing that unites pretty much all of them is a commitment to helping students. I know it always go back, goes back to students for the vast majority of our donors. They want to help, um, they want to help kids achieve their their dreams. They they understand the importance of education in terms of not just 
an individual, you know, what that does for an individual in their life, but what that does for a community as a whole. And so I think the number one underlying thing is a commitment towards educating young people. Okay. Well, that, you know, maybe as we kind of round out the show here, I want to put you on the spot and, and ask you, is there a donor that stands out? I mean, without mentioning names or a situation that really has moved you uh, with their generosity or a, a case that kind of helps give you energy when you think about it um, that, you, that you've had over the last few years? Yeah, um, it happens a lot, actually. Um, you know, I have one donor that stands out in particular who um, who's not local, lives on the East Coast, and his family has some business in, in Grand Junction. And you know, he called me up a few years ago and said, you know, we really understand how important the university is and how important it is to educate. He comes from a wide, you know, long, long list of educators in his family and said, we want to do something um, for the students. And so we talked about setting up an endowment and he and his brother set up an endowment and they've come out to campus a few times and I've taken them around and introduced them to some of their scholarship recipients. And they've just become so committed, you know, from living back in Pennsylvania. Um, they send annual, you know, monthly gifts now well beyond what their initial commitment was. And I think, you know, they're, they're more excited about CMU, which none of them went to CMU, but they, they totally understand the culture and what we're doing is so important in this community and beyond this community. And, you know, their generosity is just amazing to see, um, you know, from, from afar that they're, they're still committed. So that's one that one stands out for me. Great. Well, Liz, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Um, don't go anywhere, though, because after a short break, we'll be right back with Tomlinson Library's Head of Access Services and Outreach, Laureen Cantwell. Welcome back to CMU Now, a monthly show where we talk about the remarkable work happening at Colorado Mesa University and Western Colorado Community College. We'd like to welcome our next guest, Tomlinson Library's Head of Access Services and Outreach, Laureen Cantwell. Welcome to the show, Laureen. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, joining us virtually today. We really appreciate yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out of your, your day to do that. No problem. My pleasure. All right. So why don't we start off today with you telling the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background so they can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. So I uh, I actually grew up on Long Island, um, which is a much more watery area um, <laughs> and flatter, flatter too. Um, and I, I was kind of there all through college years. I did my bachelor's uh, at Vassar College. I was an English major. And then I ended up moving to Philly, where I did grad school at Drexel University for library and information science. And um, then I ping-ponged around a little bit. I was in Iowa for a year. I was in Memphis for two. And then I ended up out here as the reference and distance services librarian for CMU back in the fall of 2014. And uh, as of around, I guess, October, November of 2019, uh, I became the head of access services and outreach. Great. And, you know, it's always interesting for me to hear, you know, we've worked with each other, you know, for the last couple of years, but to hear your background of that, you've been kind of all over the U.S. And then it's interesting that you landed here in Grand Junction, Colorado. Yeah, it does sound like like an interesting career. And I, I was looking at your your title and I was thinking about, you know, libraries are not the libraries of one's childhood. They become different, more technology-driven, they're more complex. And, you know, your title, what does that mean for folks that maybe aren't familiar with what a modern library like ours offers in terms of services? What do you do? What does your 
title and gender? Oh, these days it feels like jack of all trades. Um, but, you know, so when I was referenced in distance services, um, my primary functions were assisting with um, student needs at the research help desk uh, through our virtual chat service, through instruction, um, and particularly keeping an eye out for students who are based at a distance. Uh, so the distance services component of things. Um, so I get confused a lot with distance ed um, and we have a lot in common, but, um, but my role was, was a little bit different and focused specifically within the library. Um, shifting into head of access services and outreach, what that means is that I am looking out for our checkout services, our uh, reserves, both print and electronic and fun things like anatomical sets and rock sets and things like that. Um, also, our interlibrary loan services, which are particularly critical uh, for our students and faculty right now. Um, and then on the outreach side, it's the programming, it's our events, it's making sure that we have um, strong touch points with our community, uh, be those virtual or uh, in person. Um, so just making sure that that our services have really uh, high expectation and um, high success with our delivery, fixing problems, uh, communicating upwardly and downwardly, that, that kind of thing. Great. Well, you are listening to CMU Now on KAFM Community Affairs, and our second guest today is Tomlinson Library's Head of Access Services and Outreach, Lorraine Cantwell. Um, so, Lorraine, I know I've been an avid reader for most of my life, and I've spent a lot of time in libraries, um, and there's just a feeling when you enter a library. Like, I know for me, it feels very, like, at home. I love the way it smells. I love the quietness of it. I love just getting to see all of the books and the opportunities that are there at the library. So I can only imagine what it feels like to work at one. So what would you say is the best part of your job and what you get to do? That's a great question, Caitlin. So um, I, I can also sympathize with your feelings of, uh, of, of walking into a library and, and what that experience feels like and, and means to you um, as just a, a member of our population, just the fact that you can walk into a library and see and touch everything. You know, I feel like Belle, when she enters the library in Beauty and the Beast, you know, where I just want to like twirl around and read all the books. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, I I think, you know, for me, it's, it's always been a safe space. Uh, and I, I try not to get too emotional when I talk about it. But um, when I was growing up, I lived near a small local library, uh, Brookhaven Free Library, shout out. Um, and uh, I mean, just tiny, but special because the people who worked there um, had been babysitters of mine. They had taught me in nursery school uh, and shifted into library work, things like that. So even though I actually never worked there, we joked that I had a cot in the basement. Um, so for me, it's <laughs> I love that, that. <laughs> you can walk in there and you can have comfort. You can have a friend and that friend can be a book. That friend can be the staff members there whose total aim is to help you and to figure out what you need and how they can make that happen for you. And there aren't that many places where you can have access to unfiltered information and where people seek to provide that for you. Um, so that's, I mean, that's for me always, but what libraries have uh, been meant to do and what the best libraries achieve. 
I, I can really relate to what Caitlin was saying about libraries and, and how you described them too. I, I actually uh, read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography last year, and I had no idea that, that he and others kind of invented the modern library and that w- libraries are sort of a fixture of, a, of American society, at least in, in terms of how they're configured now. And, but they've also had to really work hard to adjust to the times, and they've changed a lot. And I think they've been pretty successful at that. But lately, I assume you, all the changes you've had to make in relation to the pandemic probably um, are pale and comp- are, are nothing compared to um, what you've had to change you know, over the last decade or so in terms of technology. Can you talk to us about what you've had to do to adapt to the pandemic and how that might be similar or different to the adaptions you've been making over the last decade, just from a technology standpoint? Sure. Libraries have always, I think, needed to be agile organizations. I mean, from, you know, Alexandria, where we had scrolls, uh, to, you know, to now where people are like, why do we need librarians? We have Google, you know, and you have to kind of, you know, navigate a really careful landscape of the amount of access that we individually have to information pursuits and what it's like to need help with those pursuits. Um, So sure. Yeah. We have more computers now. Uh, Google exists. Um, Amazon exists. Uh, You know, there's lots of resources out there, but I think, um, Generally speaking, what people have found in libraries over the last 10 years is for families, things like cost savings, uh, you know, public libraries in particular, that's a huge way to get your kid reading, to keep them active, to find programming, and for all of that to be absolutely free um, is an amazing local service uh, that I think um, libraries have actually had a resurgence. I want to say there's been maybe more library visits over the last year than there were movie theater visits, you know, things like that. And people don't realize that, you know, we always think it's just us that's going to the library. Just like, you know, when you're in a classroom, you're the only person with a question, right? So uh, that remembrance of of what libraries are meant to do uh, is really important. We're there to provide information and we all have information needs all the time. Um, so just having a place to do that, whether it's over electronic databases or not, is really critical. And we have adapted to all of those things. So, so you're saying in, that the archetype of this person sitting alone, uh, they're facing a book in the library by themselves has kind of changed. And now it's more of an experiential thing with your friends or your family. And that's one of the ways that libraries have stayed relevant in this technological shift. That- yes, I feel a little bit like you were spying on me circa 2002 to 2006. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's changed. Uh, we're highly collaborative spaces. We've got study rooms designed for that. Um, many libraries have um, maker spaces and all sorts of things to make sure that students can collaborate the way that curriculum needs them to and so that they can isolate the way curriculum needs them to. So our library also has two quiet spaces. Um But when you look at the pandemic situation, um, we're really in a a unique circumstance that doesn't tend to arise for so many libraries at once. Uh, For instance, you know, you have the the fire that hit the Los Angeles Public Library in the mid-1980s. That's a critical situation, but it's one building. Um, tons of collections, amazing things were lost, but one building. Uh, the flood that happened, um, I think it's U Boulder um, a, a number of years ago, I forget exactly what year, maybe in the 90s. Um, 
we invented services uh, for interlibrary loan of articles and books and book chapters and things based on that flood. Uh, but that was just one library. Um, so what we're really dealing with right now is, is what happens when kind of all the libraries are inaccessible uh, and, and how staff can navigate that and how we can still provide services in that environment. So a lot of what I've been focusing on within both outreach and access services is really uh, trying to figure out how we can adapt our services to still meet as many of the needs of our students, staff, and faculty as humanly possible, while still, for the most part, working remotely and not having the building accessible to patrons. Yeah, I was going to say, and, you know, we sent out a survey recently to students about, you know, what virtual resources they were using that we provide. And I know the library was right up there as one that most of our students, I think it was like 80 or 90 percent, are accessing and using and are aware of the services that you provide at a distance. So kudos to you and your team and all of the great work that you guys have been doing over these last couple of weeks to still support our students as they work remotely. Thank you. I, I mean, it's it's actually been a pretty fun thought experiment, um, you know, trying to figure out how to how to make all this happen. But um, luckily, we have a staff that's super, super dedicated to, in particular, our students, but overall, just customer service. And so even though at first it was like, oh, goodness, should we be working from home? Then it very, very quickly became, oh, my goodness, but someone needs a chapter or book but this article or, um, oh, there's someone with things on the hold shelf. How can we get that to them? And, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, we, we want to be safe, but we want to provide. And so we actually developed a curbside pickup program uh, where people can schedule um, a time to come pick up items that they put on hold. And we've had uh, probably about a 50-50 split of students and faculty making use of that over the last month or so that it's been in play. Great. I'd love to hear that. Uh, well, you are listening to CMU Now on KAFM Community Affairs, and our guest today is Tomlinson Library's Head of Access Services and Outreach, Lorreen Cantwell. So, Lorreen, we're already getting to the end of our time with you, but before we let you go today, I figure there's quite a few people, you know, who are at home, working from home, staying home. And so I think it'd be maybe beneficial for them to hear from you if there's any book recommendations that you would offer to those that are staying at home and quarantining at home, if there's like a top one, two, or maybe three that you could could name out for them to read. Oof, nothing like being put on the spot for a book recommendation. <laughs> and I want to add to that and ask for your favorite author Woo. too. Who's your favorite author on top of that? I feel I feel like someone just threw down a gauntlet in front of me. Uh, so, okay. So if you haven't read it yet, um, Susan Orlean's The Library um, is actually really fun since things like libraries are kind of on our mind in this conversation. Um, it gets into the history of libraries, uh, what libraries mean to people. And it actually does talk about the uh, quite a bit the fire at the Los Angeles Public Library in the 80s and, you know, just how how they handled it, um, how the city of Los Angeles came together to make sure that they preserve things. Um, so that's all to say that libraries are resilient. Um, and, and it's a great book. It's super well told and, and very compelling to read. Um, so that's that's a great one. Um, if people are interested in suspense type content, um, I actually got an early copy of a book called No Exit. Um, and I'm not remembering the author's name right now. I might be able to Google it really quick. Um, but 
it's actually set in Colorado. Um, it's Taylor Adams, sorry, uh, No Exit by Taylor Adams. And um, it's set in Colorado during a blizzard, which is nice to think about with summer coming. And um, it's, it's really, really suspenseful. I mean, every time I thought this has to end soon, it just kept going. Uh, very cinematic. Um, and he has another book uh, called I Shot that's very much the same way, but set in the desert and very cinematic. So those, those are great. Um, other books, I'm trying to think of, um, oh, something non-political that I've been reading lately. Um, I think those are good. Yeah, those are great recommendations. Mm -hmm. I don't want to let you off the hook. I still want you to tell us your favorite author. Oh, my favorite author. I don't actually have one. Um, It's something I think that people expect me to have because I am a book lover. Um, But I don't actually have one because I I guess when it comes to authors, I'm very polyamorous. You know, (laughs) like if, if you're good at what you do and it's suspense, I love you. If you're good at what you do and it's a trashy romance, I love you. <laughs> I just, you know, it's Abraham Lincoln, right? Whatever you are, be a good one. Um, and that's, you know, when you find truly great authors, you can really um, fall into books. Um, the other thing that that's great about books to keep in mind, particularly with things like fiction in a time like this, is that fiction helps develop empathy. Um, because we often end up putting ourselves in the, in the footfalls of the characters of the book. So, um, that's where reading things that are different, reading things that are about people that you don't know or worlds that you don't experience, whether it's, you know, wealthy people, Asian people, um, you know, people from historical times, whatever it happens to be, um, those fictional components really help us, I think, develop within ourselves. Um, So kind of keep that in mind, too. This is a great time to kind of expand your worldview and and touch on things that that you're not that familiar with and and learn more about everybody and what we're all handling. Um, One thing I do want to plug really quick um, while we're keeping in mind things like reading, is that our special collections and archives at the Tomlinson Library is collecting journals, diaries, and other records from community members' experiences within the pandemic. Um, this is our library in conjunction with Dr. Swearer Swedberg from the History Program, um, and we hope to make um, both a physical collection and and a digital collection from anyone in the CMU Grand Valley or uh, Western Slope community. So anyone who wants to submit anything, um, we'll hear from you and we'd love to, you know, really build something coming out of this. It'll be an important record. Great. Well, yeah, as I say, that sounds like a great project and a great way to to end our show today. So thank you again, Lorraine, so much for joining us. And again, she's the head of Access Services and Outreach at Tomlinson Library. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Nice to talk to you both. You too. Bye-bye. This segment airs on the second Tuesday of each month on KAFM Community Radio. You can also listen to a podcast of today's show at kafmradio.org. I'm your host, Caitlin Birdsall, along with my co-host, David Ludlam, and we'll be back next month for another edition of CMU Now on the Community Affairs Hour.